Welcome to Unspoken Unsung, the podcast that celebrates the lives, accomplishments, and legacies of people we may pass on the street every day, unaware of their wisdom, courage, and determination, or of the lessons we could learn if we only knew their stories. These are stories unspoken, acts unsung. Stacey Hunt's story is a case study in the power our attitudes and perspectives exercise over our lives. Challenges many would resist as burdens, Stacey takes on as opportunities. She's learned invaluable life lessons from the likes of Malcolm Forbes and Johnny Mathis. Stacey's company, Point Media, holds a unique media niche forging long-term business relationships with giants such as the Rolling Stones, Mariah Carey, and Celine Dion. And so we, we came up with this idea to do what are called satellite media tour. So we were no longer just producing a video package that was pre-recorded. We could have, you know, you as the spokesperson for that company product service. Um, get on the air and we would pre-book you on TV stations all across the country, Canada, Mexico, wherever you wanted to be. And you would come into a studio and sit down and every 10 minutes you are interviewed by another reporter somewhere in the country or the world. And that goes on today. Or we'll get a call from a, a record label or a PR firm and they say, the Rolling Stones are going out on tour. Uh, we need you to create some packages for the Rolling Stones so that they can sell tickets. So we'll go then and sit down and do interviews with the Rolling Stones, create a package, distribute that package to the news media, and everybody knows that they're going on tour and they know when the tickets are going on sale. Following a major heartbreak, Stacy pursued a very different field of study, launching a fascinating concurrent career, which included business ventures as a certified silver pin sommelier, university lecturer, and wine judge. Failure is part of your success. I had an opportunity working with Malcolm Forbes to listen to him. And although we have different ideologies, he certainly was an intelligent man. And he said that if he hadn't failed 75% of the time, he would not have succeeded the 25% that he did. And that was impactful because Along my way, <laughs> I have had some spectacular belly flops. And they've been financial and emotional and painful. This is a truly compelling and informative conversation. At times, a master class in business. Other times, a deep dive into philosophy. Meet Stacy Hunt. Stacy Hunt. Welcome to Unspoken Unsung. Thank you, Dan. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, thanks for being here. So your career path is extraordinary. For me, there's a hallmark to your life story. Would it be safe to say that your path has been fueled by an independent entrepreneurial spirit? Yes. So how old were you when you got your first job? Fifteen and a half. Was it entrepreneurial? No. <laughs> No, um, it was working in a women's uh, retail store. Oh, very great. And uh, my first job there, because I didn't know how to make change, uh -huh. and so they put me on the floor instead of behind the cash register. Ah. And so I had to um, sell, you know, dresses, lingerie, things of that nature uh, to the women who came in, and they demographic um, of the store was about, I would say, 35 plus, and I was 15 and a half. And um, I guess in a way there, there is some entrepreneurship there because they explained to me that if I sold any girdles, that I would get 11% commission. <laughs> and so everybody that came in, I told them that I was wearing a 
particular girdle uh, that was of a particular price, uh, and and I was 15 and a half, <laughs> and they liked, you know, how well, you know, it contoured me, <laughs> but I didn't have the girdle on <laughs> because I was 15 and a half, and so I sold a lot of girdles, and um, so... Uh, this was in the in the sixties. Yeah. In the sixties, and so then um, I got promoted, uh, and I was working as the um, manager of the lingerie department. Wow. And I only did that during the summer because you know I had school to go to, um, and so I did that throughout the whole summer and uh, made a few a few dollars. So were you a fashion plate at school? No, I wasn't. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't even in the, the good click. I was in um, theater and dance. And so uh -huh. we were the oddballs in the school. Yeah. So where did you grow up? Uh, well, my dad um, was in the Air Force when I was growing up. And so um, I'm an Air Force brat, and we traveled all over the U.S. We didn't leave the United States, but we, we were in all of the... Um, armpit locations across the United States. Why not North Dakota, no doubt? Pine Bluff, Arkansas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, Alamogordo, New Mexico, all of these places. Um, and, and so we, you know, we just traveled uh, until my dad became an officer. We traveled in a trailer. Mm -hmm. And so we spent a lot of time in trailer parks. And then when he became an officer, we got base housing, which was great. Oh, yeah. Because that was pretty fancy. So how long had you been in the school you graduated high school from? Uh, well, I went to high school, to two different high schools. Mm -hmm. um, I went to Washington High School in Los Angeles and Morningside High School in Inglewood. Wow. And then in elementary school, I went to 11 elementary schools in wow. six years. Yeah. Do you have any friends from that period? No. Yeah, I thought it would be hard. Yeah, I began making my friends when I went to college. Yeah, yeah. So what were your parents like? Very contemporary. Um, very progressive. Uh, you know, I, I joked if I wanted to rebel against my parents, if I had wanted to rebel and cause them a lot of grief, I, I would have joined the Young Republicans. <laughs> That's the opposite of my family. <laughs> oh, goodness. So how would you describe the values that, that shaped your younger years? I knew I was loved mm -hmm. by my parents. I was not indulged, um, but I knew I was loved. Um, there were rules and regulations, which I wriggled against mm -hmm. and pushed against and paid the consequences for doing so. Yeah. And, um, but there was also an equality in the household in terms of making certain decisions. And I think that came from the fact that we spent so much time together in a car mm -hmm. traveling all around. My dad's job in the Air Force accounted for that. He, um, he, he was uh, an officer, but he was more like a management consultant for flight lines. Mm. So wherever there was an Air Force base in the country that had an issue with flight lines, from building a, a new one to restaffing one to um, personnel problems to aircraft problems, whatever it was, we went there until he would solve it, and then we'd be shipped to another flight line. So... Um, I think the ability to jump into a situation and get comfortable mm -hmm. right away uh, were the values that they gave me uh, that, you know, immediately, you know, get involved. Yeah. Don't stand on the sidelines. That sounds more than a value. It sounds like a value and a skill set. Likely. Yeah, yeah. likely. Yes. I use it today because I'm, I'm still terrified to walk into places where I don't know anyone, mm -hmm. but... Instantly, I can find a way to connect up with something. Oh, very great. But I perspire. My hands are wet. My hands are wet when I walk in the room. <laughs> oh, golly. So you've launched a number of successful business enterprises. What was the first? 
Uh, the first business enterprise I had was when I was um, 17 and a half, um, just turning 18, and I was waiting for my um, 18th birthday so that I could take the state exam for cosmetology. I had finished the schooling, but you couldn't take the exam until you were 18. So I was working as an apprentice in a salon mm -hmm. doing shampooing and, and booking appointments for the other uh, stylists. And uh, one of the salesmen came in and said, um, you know, I, I am working with a company up in West L.A. that um, manufactures and imports hair pieces for celebrities. How would you like to, um, you know, go there and, and style wigs? And I said, okay. Um, but I had to wait till I got my license. So mm -hmm. after I got my license and I worked for about a year in the salon, I realized that wasn't for me. And so the idea of working on hair pieces without anybody attached to them sounded good. <laughs> so um, I, I, I followed up and went there. And um, I was working there styling wigs for actresses and actors and, and different people like that. You know, hair pieces for men. And, all. and it was fun. It was really fun. Met uh -huh. a lot of you know, celebrities. And uh, then the gentleman that was the importer from Hong Kong, he and I became friends. And he said, why don't you just start a business? You know everybody in the salon industry. Why don't you sell them hair goods? Mm. Which were very popular then and, and, mm -hmm. and are having a resurgence now with extensions and little wiglets and hair pieces and things like that. Yeah. It was very popular back in the, this is in the 70s now. We've gone a, another decade. Mm -hmm. We're in the late 70s. So um, I started a company and he supplied me with my hair goods and I had a car. I had a, um, a Fiat and a, for that I had a Sunbeam. Alpine, and I drove around to all the beauty salons from San Pedro to West L.A. and over to Glendale and mm -hmm. sold wigs out of the back of my car to salons. That's great. So you had mentioned college. Did you complete college? I did. What was your degree in? Philosophy, uh, major, and um, minor was theater arts. Theater arts? Mm -hmm. Man, oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. I went to night school, uh -huh. and, I, and I finished in 12 years. Did you have an intention to use that toward a career? Not many people do in my experience. I don't think that I did. No. Um, I, I didn't know what I was going to do, uh, mm -hmm. but I was very busy. <laughs> so so I, I, uh, I was very busy. And so when I, when I was selling um, wigs, one day I got stopped by a high patrolman, and uh, that led to a friendship. And his brother was the news director of a station in Los Angeles called KISS Radio. And uh, his brother uh, thought that I should be in radio and not uh, selling wigs. So he hired me wow. at the radio station That's to be a, a researcher for the news department because they needed somebody to look up and fact, fact check all the mm -hmm. stories. Mm -hmm. So I started in the news department as a fact checker and a researcher at KISS Radio in L.A. You obviously used that. It, you, you developed a career that journalism is a major part of. Correct. Is that the launch of that? Is that yes. the genesis of it? Yes. Uh -huh. Yes. Yeah. I worked there for three and a half years and, um, you know, moved my way up there. And then um, I got hired by KABC Talk Radio in Los Angeles. And I was the rotating fill-in person for when people were on vacations. Uh -huh. So at that time... The big talk show host was Michael Jackson. And so I filled in for him, and then I filled in for the morning news guys. Whoever was on vacation, I was the fill-in person. Wow. So that's what I did. That had to feel a little intimidating at first. Very. <laughs> My first guest on, on, on that show was Cesar Chavez. Really? Yeah. It's my very first guest. Wow. And I was telling you about how my palms get wet. Yes. Yeah, oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, but that was my very first guest, and uh, and then uh, from there I got an opportunity to do um, television, and I did a show for KTLA, and mm -hmm. I did a like an entertainment show on Thursday nights, and then from there I did the Rose Parade with David Letterman. Now you started your own media organization. I did. I did. So 
What what initiated that idea? There's a line in um, in the play uh, by John Dos Passos called right. USA, and and the narrator talks about becoming a gray shaking husk um, <laughs> when having to do what other people you know demand of you. Right. And I found um, that being a broadcaster for a network uh, was that sort of sensation, uh, no control over. W- what you said or how you actually reported it or you know, things of this nature or choosing your stories. I was too junior. I mean, if, if I had stuck around, I might have had clout later in life, but I was too junior. So it seemed to me that the thing to do was to create something where I could use my, my creativity and my sales capability and market programming to other radio stations that I created. Mm-hmm. So I, I started a company called Radio Works. And we, um, I went to New York, and um, I got this idea of turning magazines into radio shows. Oh, very great. So I met with Malcolm Forbes, who mm-hmm. gave me an opportunity to create the Forbes magazine report. And then Discover Magazine gave me an opportunity to do the Discover Magazine report. And then Inc. Magazine gave me an opportunity to do the Inc. magazine report, and that launched my radio syndication company. Wow. Now, you have an Emmy to your credit. I do. What was that for? That was for a show I did for KNBC, um, and it was a public affairs program. So, yes. One that you initiated, was it? No, I was hired. I was hired as a host, yeah. Yeah. That's very great. That business that you formed, the media business, you had that for quite some time, did you not? Well, yes. Radio Works um, morphed into um, a television production company because I met um, a woman who was a director at Entertainment Tonight. And she was miserable there and wanted to leave. And we got the idea of combining my interview work with her directorial work, and we could create a company that, that did video um, because I didn't know much about video other than on-camera work, and she knew behind-the-scenes work. Mm. So we formed a company called On the Scene Productions, and we supplied um, news packages to television stations ranging from the release of new cars every year, uh, Chrysler was one of our clients, Mercedes mm-hmm. was one of mm-hmm. our clients, to um, entertainment, all the record labels, um, to television shows like American Idol, and um, and then healthcare companies, pharmas, and when they had, when they would do um, a clinical trial and get re- you know the permission to release the drug, we would have a doctor come on and talk about it, sort of like a Dr. Fauci back yeah, then, you yeah, know. Yeah. And so we we came up with this idea to do what are called satellite media tours. Really. So we were no longer just producing a video package that was pre-recorded. We could have you know you as the spokesperson for that company product service um, get on the air and we would pre-book you on TV stations all across the country, Canada, Mexico, wherever you wanted to be. And you would come into a studio and sit down and every 10 minutes you are interviewed by another reporter somewhere in the country <laughs> or the world. And that goes on today. That's still part of my world well, today. That sounds like you, were, you then you combine production with talent management actually. Huh? Uh, well, the talent is already there. Yeah, we, yeah. we are given the talent. So, for example, um, uh, a public relations company says, mm-hmm. you know, I represent uh, a doctor that has a breakthrough pharmaceutical product, and it's just been approved by the FDA. He wants to get it promoted so that people know they can go into their own physician and, and mm-hmm. request this product. So we'll book that doctor that invented this, for example, on, you know, talk shows all, all across, news shows all across the country or Canada. Um, or we'll get a call from a, a record label or a PR firm, and they say, the Rolling Stones are going out on tour. Uh, we need you to create some packages for the Rolling Stones so that they can sell tickets. So we'll go then and sit down and do interviews with the Rolling Stones, create a package, distribute that package to the news media, and everybody knows that they're going on tour, and they know when the tickets are going on sale. You know, one of the other artists that you worked with, was Celine Dion. Yes, it always interested me what the experience would have been like because I understand she's quite the perfectionist. 
She's a perfectionist, but she is so kind, considerate, uh, hardworking, uh, respectful to everybody from the person putting the mic on her to the person doing the interview. Mm -hmm. Uh, Never impatient, never irritable, never makes you wait. Would you walk us through what it was like working with her, what you did and how it went? Yeah. This was just before COVID. Right. (laughs) And uh, it launched another aspect of our business, actually. Um, By the way, we we, we sold that company uh, called On The Scene Productions that I had with my business partner. And we sold that. And I started another company afterward uh, called Point Media, which is Mm -hmm. the company in existence today. So... For Celine Dion, uh, this was the beginning of Facebook Live and all of right. all of this, which is all just starting to get going just before COVID. Uh, people were doing it here and there. Now it's a matter of daily use. <laughs> we do it with our families, you know. We do it with our friends, and and record labels and shows do it professionally. So what they asked us to do was the following: she was going out on tour, and. She wanted to do something to promote it that was a little different. So they wanted to do like a mini concert where she would perform six songs. And then after she performed the six songs, a small select group of people in media in the theater would have an opportunity to do a Q&A with her. And all of this would be broadcast on Facebook Live. Plus, if you were watching on Facebook Live, you had an opportunity to send in a question and possibly get it answered. Then when that was finished um, and the audience left and the Facebook Live um, broadcast was over, mm-hmm. she then came to another location within the theater where we had set up two different scenarios uh, so that she could sit down and be interviewed in person now by all the big media, Today Show, GMA, Entertainment Tonight, mm-hmm. E!, mm-hmm. And then she would sit in one place for one interview and then move and sit in the other place for the other interview. So there were different backgrounds. You know, it mm. didn't look the same everywhere. Yeah. And she did that for another two hours. Wow. Yeah. So that was a concept that you came up with? And no. Had to, you no. Know, her, no, her we did not come did. up with it. We, we were the producers. We were hired by um, AEG um, and LA Live, which is the concert promotion company. Mm-hmm. And they hired us, as they have for several projects, to do this for her. But what was great for our team was that then, not too many months later, when COVID hit, like six, seven months later, whatever it was, all of a sudden, it became, we became the go-to company for doing these kinds of things virtually. And so that sustained us, thanks God. Um, throughout uh, the COVID pandemic. It's probably still that way to some degree, isn't it? Quite a bit. Um, and with the, with the new variants popping up here and there, we have seen a couple of our in-person projects, which were just about to get back to being in-person, uh, convert back to virtual. Mm. Mm-hmm. So... I'm wondering. I'm wondering that your your interests seem so diverse all the way, you know, or maybe the opportunities and the interests merged, but all the way from healthcare and all the things you did there to entertainment and all that sort of thing. But I do know that you developed something else, an expertise in wines. How did that come about? From a broken heart. Ah. Um, before. Um, I marriage that I have now. And so the broken heart was fortuitous because I wouldn't be in this marriage if it hadn't happened. Yeah. yeah. And I wouldn't be as happy as I am. Uh, so that, that's the, the good part of the broken heart is that it changed my life completely. And so... Uh, I was married, and uh, when the marriage ended, it, it's kind of like that song, um, you know, one less bell to answer, one less <laughs> egg to fry, you know? 
And and I, I felt like uh, that character uh, that Arnold Schwarzenegger plays in Terminator, when, when he gets, remember at the end, he gets, in the first one, when he gets hacked and he's got all these wires going sticking out of him because he doesn't have the covering anymore. So I felt like that. I felt like when the marriage ended, that covering on one half of me was gone and I had all this exposed electrical stuff that was zitzing around and sparking. And uh, so I was talking to my mom and she said, well, you've always been interested in wine and food and so why don't you go over to UCLA, get the extension catalog, you know, go to W and see what's under wine and, you know, see if there's something there and, you know, you've, you've got extra time, do this. So I dutifully drove over to <laughs> UCLA um, and got the catalog and drove back home and thumbed through it and there, lo and behold, was a, a class starting, you know, very soon. Uh, in wine, it was called Vintage, and it had it was Vintage One and Vintage Two, and I had a lot of experience um, drinking wine and studying wine on my own. I had never taken a formal course, but I had gone to a lot of tasting classes and different things, mm-hmm. and I had a lot of books. I read a lot of books, and uh, and I hung out with people that drank wine, so they taught me things about wine, mm-hmm. and so I signed up for the first course, and I went to the first night, and um, everybody came in wearing winery t-shirts, you know, and the, but not because they worked there, but because they had visited there, mm-hmm. and uh, they were talking very basically about wine, like there is red wine, there is white wine, you know, so on and so forth, and I thought, oh, this isn't for me. So I went up to the teacher and said, I feel like I know a little bit more than this, and I'm kind of in a hurry. Right. Um, is there, could I sign up for the second level, even though this is a prerequisite? And he said, if you take a quiz, I've got another seat available, so yes. So you take the quiz, you know, right after class. Mm-hmm. I took the quiz. It was easy. You know, anybody in this room right now could pass it. You know, it, this was really a, a beginner, beginner, beginner right. course. And so he put me into the second course, and now I was over my head. Now the same people that were in that class wearing winery shirts worked for the winery. Oh. So it was a whole different thing. And there was uh, myself and a guy that worked in, he was a rocket scientist. He, he, he was in the class, and there were 34 other people, or 32 other people. There were 34 of us. And uh, the, it was very hard because now we're into winemaking, viticulture, uh, trellising, uh, grape mm. varieties, DNA. And I, I stayed because I was embarrassed to tell him I was afraid. And I cried all the way home, you know, the first night and called my parents and said, I've made a terrible mistake. And they said, it was raining and I was crying. I remember it was very dramatic, you know. And they said, just do it. So I stayed with it. And um, when we finished a year later, there were eight of us that graduated. Wow. Yeah. Out of how many? 34. Wow. Yeah. Now, some people just dropped out because they didn't sure. like it or they were too busy. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know. Right. But some people, m- many people dropped out because they didn't understand it. was. They thought they were going to just drink wine all, all, all evening, you know. But it wasn't about that. Yeah. You know, I'm going to diverge just a little bit, but something that you said struck me, and that's that a lot of times I've heard people, when they speak of people who've experienced or created success, kind of write it off like, well, they've had an easy life, and, and that's a piece of cake, and good for them. You know? But... Yours is not that. I mean, there's more to the story of your 26-year business, isn't there? Yes. And the first thing is, my business partner and I um, couldn't have done it without the people that we hired as our team. Um, You know, we tried. (laughs) And after a couple of years, we realized we couldn't do it all. So we needed to bring in people that were better at the things that we were not as good at. So we built, uh, over the 26 years, a very strong team. And, and I want to say that today in Point Media, um, 
there's a man named Jim Bowling who has been with me for 30 years. And he started as an employee at On The Scene Productions mm -hmm. and moved over with me as an associate in Point Media. And he is our creative director and our, our media guru. So first of all, he needs me and I need him. Just like at On The Scene, we needed all those people and they needed us, you know. So you, you, need, you need friends, you need family, and I'm talking about work friends, work family around you to build a successful um, operation. So that's, that's number one. Number two, um, failure is part of your success. Mm. I had an opportunity working with Malcolm Forbes to listen to him. And although we have different ideologies, he certainly was an intelligent man. And he said that if he hadn't failed 75% of the time, he would not have succeeded the 25% that he did. Wow. And that was impactful because along my way, um, along my way, <laughs> I have had some spectacular belly flops. And they've been financial and emotional and um, painful. Mm -hmm. And perhaps, as you and I have spoken before this show, and I, I, I want to mention that we, we did, and that's why you're asking me that question, right. um, I lost a very deep friendship over the course of the sale of our company on the scene productions and the start of the new company point media, my business partner that had been my, my sister, my friend, um, my other half for 26 years, uh, the transition from one to another, um, the changes in who we were and how we right. became, um, fractured the friendship on 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 her in her estimation and so i'm respecting her request that we end our our friendship that's tough that's that's actually probably a more common story than one would think don't you think i've heard this type of story from other people that isn't even necessarily tied to business but but tied to some real or imagined slight mm -hmm. that because perception is reality, it's very real for the person who, who feels it. And there may not be anything that the other person can do to heal that. Yes. yes. And I, I had another friend who was a minister um, years ago who, who put it a really good way. He said, when something like that happens, it's like a, a fabric gets torn. And, and he said, you can stitch it back together, but the original weave, you know, has been irreparably um, damaged. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm not sure that's correct. I, I think that when you stitch it back together, you just create a new type of fabric, which may be stronger, because now you have this over and under stitch going, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know. So I'm, I'm not sure that's act absolutely accurate, but I'm not here to tell you that I've experienced that yet with, uh, with my friend. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, um, the course that you were taking in wines, was this concurrent with work that you were still doing with the media? Yes. I mean, we, we had, our, we had our, old, our original company, and so I was going to night school and taking that. And then, I, and then when I graduated from that, I enrolled at UC Davis in the Viniculture and Enology program. And I was in the extension program, so it was online. And uh, I did that for two years. And then uh, I went to the Court of Master Sommeliers to take the uh, level one sommelier mm -hmm. exam. And it's a self-study. And then you go to Napa and take the exam. And, and I made it through that. And then I knew I wanted to do something more formal and get a stronger certification. And I knew I was very interested in Italian wine. And so um, 
an Italian organization called the Association of Italian Sommeliers was starting their very first English language uh, certification program in the U.S. And prior to that, it had only been in Italian. So I signed up for it, the very first one. And our teachers all came over from Italy. Wow. <laughs> it was pretty fabulous. We didn't just learn Italian wine, mm -hmm. but, it, but it is an Italian organization. We had to learn French, American, Spanish, Australian, New Zealand, <laughs> South African, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. every, type of, every type of wine everywhere, Canadian um, and uh, Mexican, all of it. And so uh, that program is a two-year program. And so I did complete that program. Now I have my, my license and certification as a certified silver pen sommelier. What does that designation mean? It means I can select a bottle of wine for you. <laughs> Two buck chucks <laughs> has been my usual. <laughs> you know what, though? I mean, there, there's one thing that always amazed me about I, I talked to somebody else who was in the middle of a sommelier school. And this person was saying that part of what he had to learn was that he had to learn to be able to tell by, I don't know, the, the, again, my ignorance is showing, but be it the nose, the taste, the whatever you want to call it, all those things. He had to not only be able to, to hear or sense subtleties like how they say with a taste of apricot, uh, but he also had to be able to say what region the wine came from. Which just amazes me. So, you... so here's my, my take on that. I think it's a parlor trick. Mm. Um, I had to do it too. If you, go, if you study to get this certification, um, you have to be able to do that. I don't know that you're ever in your life going to use it again. Um, I'm a wine judge, and I, I judge large competitions. And nobody has ever had us have to guess what we're judging. We, we don't know the producer. We don't know the vintage. Well, we, yeah, we do know the vintage. Um, but we don't know the producer. And we do know whether it's domestic or, or not. Mm -hmm. And the reason that a judge needs to know that before they sit down is you need to like chip away a few things so you can get to business. If you have to futz around and say, I wonder if this is new world, old world, you know, I wonder, you know, you know, is this a Grenache or is it a, you know, is it a Gamay? You know, I mean, you're starting to waste time. You know, when you're judging wine, you're judging a category and you're judging in that category to see if that wine is, you know, worthy of that category. And will a consumer who purchases that bottle of wine be satisfied? That's mm -hmm. what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and we're looking for faults. I mean, is this wine poorly made? Is this wine, um, you know, is it corked? If so, let's go get another bottle and, and try, it, try it again. So the bottle, what you have in front of you are 20 or 30 or 40 glasses. But you as a judge know that you're judging Chardonnay. You're judging price-wise, it could be $15 and above. Um, or $35 and above, they tell you that. Mm -hmm. um, they tell you uh, what the vintage is, if, if it's known. But that's all you know. And, and they tell you if it's, if it's uh, domestic or not. Okay? So, so you know going in, if you're drinking a, a Chardonnay from California, there are certain tick-offs in your mind that it has to have. If when you taste that wine, it's not there, then that wine can be discarded. So, so when I say it's a parlor trick to give somebody a glass of wine and say, is it new world, old world? Oh. What's the grape variety? What's the vintage? I mean, yeah, it's great if you can do that every single time. And there are people who can. I did it enough times to pass my exams, but I don't spend my time doing that. I, I, if I pass other exams, which I will, I'll have to do it again. But essentially in your day-to-day -day life, it's kind of like, you know, when you go to school and you learn algebra and geometry, but they don't tell you how to balance your checkbook, <laughs> you know, so, so you, you learn enough to pass your algebra and geometry yes. classes, but do you actually use it if you're not an engineer yes. in daily life, you know? So that, that's, my, that's my story about that. So it, it, but it, it's, it's always kind of sounded to me, I mean, I've, I've, 
kind of looked at, at it, when I hear some of that, I, I kind of respond like, well, either somebody's got superhuman DNA and a, no, a nasal sensory capacity that I have no idea existed, or just like what you were saying. And it's, it's trained. I, I would say this, Dan. It's it's trained, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the reason you can, people talk about an apricot or a strawberry or, or something in wine is not because they've added apricots or they've added strawberries, but because there are sensorial aromas that, uh. that come during the winemaking process, which also have to do with the soil that the vine was grown in, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that will have aspects that you can begin to pick up. And, and if you've ever done this, where you're, you're tasting a wine and somebody says, oh, this is like apricot and peach and, you know, stone fruits and, and, I, and white flowers. You've, you've heard people talk like that. As they are saying it, and you sip that wine, you'll start to get it. It's, it's a suggestion um, that an untrained person, you know, can then take in. But to a trained person, we've been trained to look for those qualities in that grape based on where that grape was grown and how it was um, fermented and, and made into wine. Was it, was it fermented in oak? It'll pick up that, that right. toast, that wood, that oak sensation. Was it fermented in stainless steel? Okay, we're not going to... If, if we're speaking of Chardonnay, we're not going to have butter and butterscotch and yeah. vanilla and all that stuff, which comes from the oak. We're now going to have just very crisp, clean, floral and citrus type aromas coming from because there's no wood giving it the, the bottom level. Think of it like perfume. You know, people who are perfumiers, you know, they, they have a nose that senses out flowers and plants and herbs and different things like that and woods. And so when they're creating a perfume, they'll have these upper notes, floral, fruit, you know, yes. herb. And then they'll put a bottom in, which could be, you know, a, a stronger herb or a, a wood, like sandalwood or, or vanilla, you know, that type of thing. So it's just, it's the same thing. There are sensorial aromas that come from the, um, the earth, and they make their way into the wine based on the the ground it's grown in, and the winemaking process. So and those are distinctions that can be taught. Yes. Because that's what I always thought. I always thought when people would say, a taste of a little touch of apricot or peach, I was thinking that's total suggestibility. And I would wonder if somebody, if somebody like at my level went, oh, I get it. If I'd ever be able to do that again, if somebody wasn't there to suggest that I'm going to be yeah, if you were if you were trained, yes. If it just happens once a week on Saturday <laughs> night, no. Because but, you know, it's it's like it's just training your senses. We we have all sorts of senses going on. Wow. You know, um and we have all sorts of tastes going on. But the, but the wine, the wine the beauty of the wine is coming from the nose. Like with all food and and drink, it's not our taste buds so much that that activate it's the the aromas that activate our our saliva and get everything going because you walk into place if you're not a vegan and you smell a steak being oh, made yes. right away you uh, start to feel the the juices you know right. started to go in your mouth you know that's because you're smelling this this steak you know yes um and if you're a vegan it might happen when you see somebody or smell somebody chopping basil that extraordinary aroma of basil, which mm. suddenly gets you excited about having pasta with pesto, you know, basil pesto. So it's your nose that does it, which is why when you have a cold, you can't taste anything mm. because your nose doesn't have any ability to receive the aromas. Wow. So sounds as though part of the training then, obviously a lot of it has to do with pairing which means you'd also have to learn something about food and the, the qualities that food... And, and how you prepare them. You know, one way to train yourself, I mean, for anybody that's listening, mm-hmm. this is kind of fun, is you're walking down the street, right. um, you know, and you go by a, a geranium, for example. Rub your fingers on the geranium leaf uh-huh. and, then, and then smell it. Uh-huh. And then 
what happens is we, we have this capability in our brain, the olfactory nerve um, stores that memory of a geranium smell. And if you go by um, a honeysuckle and you rub on the honeysuckle blossom and stick that up to your nose or a rose and stick that up to your nose or oregano right. or rosemary, just, just, keep, just go around rubbing. I, I do that very often. And, and I'm smelling. And what's happening is I'm creating a library of, of named aromas in my, in my head. So, you know, I'm, if I'm taking a, a sip of something, I can pick an herb. I can, he- I can like, you know, oh, there's thyme in this or there's lavender mm. or something like that. So it's the same in cooking. Uh, anyone that enjoys cooking knows that you're, you're cooking by... Uh, by sense, right. you say, "Oh, onion! Oh, onion! Onion crisped would be better than onion raw in this." And so you know, I have to put it, you know, in an oven or a broiler to crisp it up because that's going to do something to the onion that a raw onion won't do. Ah, you know, you go to In and Out, you have your choice: do you want grilled onions or raw onion? <laughs> yes. And so it's two different ways of taking the same onion yes. and creating totally different taste. That's true. Yeah. I'd never thought of that. Yeah. So like a meat, um, you, can, you can boil a meat, you can roast a meat, you can braise a meat, you can saute a meat, you know, you can grill a meat. And everything you do to that meat is going to change the taste of the meat because you are, all, you are uh, altering the muscle, the, the fat, you know, and, and all of that that's inside the meat, the fibrous. So you're, you're still using all those skills now. Yes. Matter of fact, would I, would I be accurate in saying probably on, on balance more than you, the other skills you use for your production company? Is there, how, do you, how do you mingle those two things? They're so diverse. You know, people are like plants. Uh, we, we came from a certain soil. We had a certain type of nurture. Um, you know... Maybe we were fed well, or maybe we were not fed well. Mm-hmm. Maybe we were hydrated well, or we were not hydrated well. Uh, maybe we were pruned or left wild. Um, you know, maybe we were polished or left to get dusty. Yes. Um, you know, um, it, here's, a, here's, a, here's how I think about it. I think about it as we come from something... And it's probably very different, but we all um, strum a human chord. Yes. And if I'm doing an interview with someone or if I'm um, producing something, I'm, I'm looking for that common chord that we all strum. There's something there that we all harmonize with, mm-hmm. no matter how we got to this moment where we just sat down together or stood up together or whatever we're doing together. Right. So, so I think it's very similar to preparing a meal <laughs> mm-hmm. in that you're, you're, you're pulling together all these elements that may come from different places, but, but when you finish it, it's, you know, it, it all comes into mm. something that you've created at that moment, which is a relationship. Johnny Mathis was one of the early people I ever interviewed, and he's a famous home chef. And he said one day, uh, and it was on the air, and, and my news director said he almost ran into a pole because back in the you know, early 80s, this was racy. Um, he said on the air that the single most intimate thing a person could do was not making love or having sex, but it was preparing a meal for them wow. and having them take it inside their body. <laughs> I bet that was racy at that time. Yeah. But think about it. But it's it. true, yeah. Think about it. And uh, I've never forgotten what he said. Because that is what happens with every meal. Whether you're picking up something that's, you know, pre-made and you're just going to heat it up in the microwave. Right, right. Or whether you're going to start by chopping and dicing and sautéing and creating something from scratch. You, you are still creating something that you give to someone else and they put it inside their body. Now, if you are a solo diner and you're just eating it yourself... Mm-hmm. That's what you're doing for yourself. Yes. It's a very intimate thing you're doing for yourself, which is why you shouldn't stand up when you're eating. You should sit down. Wow. You, 
Probably, it, it strikes me now that as I think about it that you might be incorporating what you do in wines and wineries and the wine business into your production company. I would think that would be a natural fit, huh? You'd think so. <laughs> I, I have done very few winery projects in my production really? company. That's a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the biggest and best thing I ever did was produce a one-hour documentary for um, Marvin um, at Wine Spectator magazine, Marvin Schenken. And he wanted to do a, a documentary on the first 25 years of the magazine. Mm -hmm. And we got hired to do that. So uh, other than that, it's been bits and pieces, but, but not really very much. Yeah. You also, as I understand, you're a lecturer, you're an adjunct professor of wine at Cal Poly and UCLA, as well as a special lecturer at USC School of Business. You co-created an accredited certified American wine specialist course for the North American Sommelier Association. So there's a terrific story in that somewhere. How do you manage all of that? Well, um, I'm, I'm not an adjunct professor presently because classes haven't been, you know, oh, been in, pro right, in process. Yeah. But um, up until COVID, I, I would be called upon through uh, Cal Poly and Pomona to come and teach a course for, um, for the hospitality department in, in wine, Italian wine. And uh, I really enjoyed that, and I would do that once a year for each year's program. And then um, at UCLA, a friend of mine is the teacher of the vintage program where I started back mm -hmm. at UCLA. And uh, he will occasionally have me come in and fill in for him when he would go on vacation. Um, but there haven't been courses, so that hasn't happened. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then for USC, that was a, a really exciting thing. It was for the... Uh, the business department, and they wanted to have me come in and talk about how you um, create marketing for the music industry, you know, video marketing for the music mm -hmm. industry, not overall marketing. I, I'm specific. I don't have an overall knowledge. Yeah. Do, do you have to get accredited or some sort of accreditation to become an adjunct professor? Does that mean that, or are you essentially a guest lecturer? Yes. Yeah. yeah, you don't you don't need accreditation because you are considered a, a professional in, in the field. If a young person with diverse interests and skills seeking their lives, I mean, uh, the, I was struck when you said that you were, you were looking for your, your life's path and what direction you would choose, and it sounds as though that wasn't necessarily an easy thing or a, a quick and simple solution either. But if somebody in that position were to come to you and ask you for advice, what would you say? I can't say I had a plan. I can't say I have a plan now. Um, I, I had opportunity to try things. And first I had an education Mm -hmm. So let, let's talk about that for just a moment. I don't necessarily mean book learning education. Right. Um, if I start with my very first business, my education was in cosmetology. So I knew the vocabulary. I think if you're going to start any business at all, you must learn the vocabulary. Because every business has its own vocabulary. Mm. And if you don't know that vocabulary, it's like you're a foreigner. So I think that was the help I got when I got into the wig business, <laughs> hairpiece business, is I knew salons. I had worked in salons. I knew the owners of salons. I knew the vocabulary of the salons. And I knew what they needed because I had been there. So if you're going to go into a world, you need to get the education about that world and the vocabulary. There will be people that are listening to us that say, that didn't happen to me. And they're right, because the next job I had working at the radio station, I didn't have any radio station vocabulary, but I was in college. And they said, we need a fact checker and a researcher for the news department. And I went, library? 
I can do that. <laughs> um, so I, I began to do what you do yes. in school, which is study, fact check, you know, do that. And then along the way, learned the vocabulary of broadcasting. And then when we started our company, there were words like um, accounts receivable and accounts payable and payroll report and gross profit, net profit, overhead. I didn't know those words. Yes. And so um, my dad did. So my dad helped, and my mom did, and they helped us learn those words, my partner and I. And then eventually we were able to learn those things ourselves. Mm-hmm. Spreadsheets, you know, all these things, you know, profit and loss report. I mean, right. and so I'm, I'm not a master of it today, but I can, I can retain somebody to do that for me. Because it's, it's not something I'm good at. So, okay, what should a person do? And, and by the way, you said young person. Yeah. I, I want to strike that word. Okay. Because it's not an age when you choose to start something new. That's true. Um, I believe it was Whistler's mother who maybe in her 90th decade began to paint. Wow. I, I might be wrong by a decade, but, mm-hmm. I, but she, she certainly was in her 80th or 90th decade. Um, I think if we look around, there are stories after stories of people who discover something about themselves or a passion that they've denied, um, and they, they realize they can, they can start something. And I think mm-hmm. that's the first thing. What's the first advice I would give is, is there something you would like to do? And if you say, I'm not sure, say, what puts a smile on your face? Is it conversation? Is it sports? Is it animals? Is it gardening? Is it wine? Is it food? Is it politics? You know, what, what is it that, that makes something crackle inside of you? Mm. And go towards that crackle. And, and then learn the vocabulary of what that is. The vocabulary allows you to converse. And if you can converse, you can learn. And if you can learn, you can do. So there will be people who will say, well, what about all of these uh, startup companies that don't know anything and they just do this or that? Well, they do know something. They do have a vision. They have a vision of the future or they have a vision of how to make something better. Or they have a vision that is just, why not? So what I would say to any person who wants to start something is go towards what gives you that crackle, learn that vocabulary if you don't know it, and learn the vocabulary by taking a course. And I, I prefer that over reading a book because in a course you have dis- discourse right. <laughs> and conversation, and that keeps the learning going. And then uh, take a menial position in that field and see if it really does appeal to you. And then if it does begin to find out how you could do some aspect of that field differently, better, faster, cheaper, prettier than the people that are in the field are doing it. Sounds like the the idea, I've always thought too, that taking a menial job, uh, even if if you have no background, it keeps your attention on what your dream is anyway, because you're, you're in the midst of it. Say if you wanted to be a doctor, and that seems insurmountable right now, if you're working in housekeeping in a hospital, at least you're in the environment and your dream is alive every day. And you learn the vocabulary. You're in the hospital yes. learning the vocabulary. Yes, yes, yes. Um, when I was going to, the, to my first wine um, courses at UCLA that I was talking about, my very first one, my teacher said to me, you're not in the wine business. You're never going to pass this course if you don't get in some way involved in the wine business. And I said, well, I have a full-time job. I run a, you know, I, I have a company. And I don't want to hear about it if you want to be in the business. And, it, and he was very tough. And right. so he said, where do you buy your wine? And there was this little wine shop in West Hollywood that I frequented. And he said, go in there and tell them you want an unpaid internship 
mm. <laughs> in there. Mm -hmm. And I went, and they turned me down. So the following week in the class, my professor said, how did it go? And I said, well, I got turned down. And he said, didn't you tell me you're in sales? <laughs> and I said, I said, yes, I have to be in sales because of my business. And he said, go back and sell yourself. And so he pushed me back in the door. And this time the guy said yes. So I would go there. This is what we're talking about, menial. I, would, I, would, I didn't consider it menial, though. I, I found it thrilling. I got to go there in the night around 6 o'clock. And my job was to restock all the wine bins take the wine from the back where all the big cases were, the, you know, shipper cases, unload the wine and put it into the appropriate bins and, and dust all the wine bottles in the bins so they were clean, you know, and, so, and turn all the labels up. So as you walked down the aisle when you were shopping the next day, all the labels were turned up so you could see them. And it was wonderful because I learned how to read wine labels. Oh, I learned you know, what a, what a region was, I learned what a vintage was, I learned what a producer was, all those different things. And I did that every night, and then I um, cleaned up, swept, and washed out wine glasses for the people that had tasted wine during the day. And then eventually he let me come in on Saturdays and um, do kind of the same thing, refresh it during the day as people bought wine, mm -hmm. go refresh the bins. And then he let me start helping people. And then from helping people, he let me actually be on the floor as a salesperson on the floor. And I loved it. You said a couple words that, that just strike me as, as being what your story is for me. One of them is you didn't say I... You, you said, I got to go in, as in it was a privilege, oh, yeah. versus saying, I had to go in. You were saying, he let me do this instead of, he told me I had to do this. That's a very, very different attitude. I, um, I am so in love with my husband and my businesses. And... He and I play off of each other in both of my ventures, and he is involved in them at a very good price, I might say. Um, <laughs> and as he says, I work for trips and dinners. <laughs> but but um, his talent and his... Um, his willingness to, to get involved and learn something new and teach me something that he knows uh, makes me really love what I do. And you are right. I get to do the things I do. I am allowed to work with rock and roll bands and physicians and researchers and scientists and inventors. And um, I, I, I go to school every day oh, that's through so my clients. Good. I go to Is school. there such a thing as a typical week for you? It, it starts around 6.30 in the morning-ish because we deal a lot with the East Coast. So the week begins often with a, an early Zoom call. It can be as early as 6.30 in the morning, mm -hmm. our time. And then it breaks like around 9-ish, 10-ish because now the East Coast is at lunch and the West Coast is starting to get into work. So we have a little bit of a break till the West Coast clients come to work. And then it can go until 9 or 10 o'clock at night because you're doing your admin at the end of the day. And then in between everything, um, planning what I want to have for dinner and what wine I want to drink and um, you know, maybe you know, getting to do something with Peter during the day. Um, Sometimes we're rushing to an airport, uh, yes. trying to find my phone. That, that's a <laughs> lot of my day, um, <laughs> trying to find my phone. Uh, and, uh, you know, worrying about how we're going to survive, you know, what we're doing. And, and is there any normalcy or average day or schedule to the day? No, I would not say there is. Yeah. yeah. Other than the start of the day and the end of the day. 
Well, again, going full circle to the to the girl who had to relocate so many times in grade school and do all the changes, get accustomed to change so much, that sounds like uh, you're right in the zone. I'm good on change. <laughs> oh, good. I'm down with it. Yeah. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you sitting down with us today. It's This has really been great. I I love it. I love it. I've learned a lot. Thank you. And and I thank you for inviting me because I got to know you today, Dan, through um, your insights and your questions. And so that's part of what I love about what I get to do. I got to meet you today and Martin today. Oh, well, thank and you. And this is something that I didn't know when I went to bed last night, what it would be like. Well, there's one last piece I'll tell you about Martin. He's a graduate of Cal Poly. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Which, which campus? San Luis. Oh, San Luis. Oh, that's the, that's the dream campus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you both uh, for inviting me to be on the program today. And um, I, I sincerely enjoyed sharing my story and, and hearing how you pried it out of me. Oh, thank you so much. For me, one of the most striking elements of my conversation with Stacy came when she, regardless of her lengthy experience working personally and directly with major figures in business and entertainment, managing significant projects, took on an internship with a wine distributor. It's remarkable that Stacy described tasks such as stocking shelves and dusting wine bottles as things she got to do, rather than things she had to do. This is no small distinction, one that has clearly served Stacy well. Unspoken Unsung was recorded in a Conversaire studio, Carlsbad, California. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, also in Carlsbad. Martin Danner and Ken Langen engineered the recording. Post-production engineer was Ken Langen. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. Music was provided by Zapsplat. Listen and subscribe to Unspoken Unsung wherever you find your podcasts. And if you like it, please rate and review us. Join us again next month for the next episode of Unspoken, Unsung.